was early morning, and the screws gave warning. But the old triangle went jingle, jingle, all along the banks of the Royal Canal. In September 1967, I was appointed curate in Armagh Parish. Chaplaincies in the various institutions in the parish were shared among the priests and it fell to my lot to minister in Armagh prison. At that time, it was the sole prison for women in Northern Ireland. Prior to 1970, it never housed more than a dozen or so women at a time, prisoners mainly on charges of simple drunkenness, assault, theft, fraud, forgery, prostitution and murder. After 1970, the number of prisoners began to increase when the political situation deteriorated into civil strife and then war. The prison became a top security institution, guarded by soldiers with arms at the ready, barbed wire and military observation posts. The number of women political prisoners increased from two in 1971 to more than 100 in the 1972-76 period. 32 of these women were imprisoned without trial. Most of the women political prisoners were girls in their teenage years, but one internee was in her 60s. In prison, with a hundred women, and a man with more, sure I love to dwell, but the old What is this out here? 1973. I, I was released in January 1973. A rifle was needed in, down in the Falls area, and we, friend, my friend and I, I went up in the Clanner to pick up a rifle. And we didn't know that the Brits had a secret lookout post and had been watching us all the time. So they let us go up into the area and pick up a rifle and come down again and we were arrested in Lower Clannard Street and we were then brought to Springfield Road Barrack and then to Town Hall Street and then on the Armagh Prison we were remanded for two months before we were sentenced. I was sentenced then to nine years and Frank Marie, she was sentenced to seven years. The difference in the sentence was um, because I had the ammunition in my pocket so I got an extra two years for, for that. 1973. Armagh Prison is a very different place to the one I wrote about in my last two annual reports. Despite the many tragedies that are still happening in Northern Ireland, there is an evolving, though painful, change of attitude towards notions of equality and human rights. Since political status was granted, there has been a wonderful change, for example, in prison life in Armagh Prison. There is an enlightened governor and staff to whom the highest compliments and praise are due. 
I notice the prisoners have no longer the sense of vulnerability and insecurity which I wrote about in former reports. Patience, attention and kindness have paid off. There is hope for the future. I became OC shortly after um, I went in. Um, the, there was, the guards knew what they were entitled to, street special category status, but they knew they were entitled to visits and parcels and this, that and the other, but we had to have some sort of military structure. And I thought, well, my idea was, if you don't have a military structure, then you might as well not have special category status because it's the main point to me was not the material things that you get, but that we were not being criminalised. So I believed I was a soldier and fighting for my country and that we were entitled to, you know, our own military structures in the prison and we were allowed to do that. It was in the summer, it was August, and it was a beautiful summer and I was wearing my sister's uh, new suit. It was a lovely check suit uh, beige with uh, darker outlines of a uh, check through it and of course uh, 73 you know you were still wearing mini skirts so my skirt was quite short and I remember being lifted and dumped into the back of this jeep and all I could think was oh flip can they see my knackers <laughs> that was sort of my immediate thought you know and um I was imprisoned for 13 and a half months from 1973 until 1974. I was incarcerated in Armagh Prison without trial. Uh, at the stage of my internment, there were about 14 other females interned. When I became Catholic prison chaplain here over six years ago, there were, at the most, six Catholic prisoners and sometimes none. Now there are about 70 Catholic women prisoners. They are not only symbolic, but they do, in fact, represent a whole background of repression and suffering among the Catholic community, which one feels is the result of political bungling. Standing orders. Any volunteer found guilty of undermining the staff will be dealt with severely. Anyone found guilty of loose talk will be dealt with accordingly. Smuggling of letters in or out will not be tolerated unless permission is granted beforehand by the staff. Any volunteer applying for compassion parole must get permission from the battalion staff. If permission is granted and she wishes an extension, she must work through Sinn Féin outside. All statements going through the papers must go through the battalion PRO, via company PRO. On the day of the funeral of a volunteer, all radios, TVs, record players and recreation will be suspended for that day, except for the news, until after the funeral. There will be commemoration parades on the first Sunday after the burial of a volunteer, full dress on a Sunday to be worn to Mass. News, Irish political and national music programmes will have first preference on radios and TVs. Agro with screws or loyalists will not be tolerated. If a volunteer has a complaint against either of these parties, she is to report it to her company staff immediately. All volunteers must have sales cleaned out by 10 o'clock. All volunteers reporting sick 
must remain in bed until the following morning. There is to be no noise after 12 midnight. Anyone wishing to see the welfare must require information from their company OC. Any welfare matter the OC deals with us will be kept in strict confidence. All volunteers must be ready on the day of their visits. This is to ensure that our visitors are not kept waiting. No property within the company is to be damaged or destroyed, and all company notices are to be obeyed. All volunteers must be locked in cells 10 minutes after the meals are brought onto the wing to enable the checks to be made. All volunteers must be locked up at night at the time decided by OC and staff of company prison. All volunteers must make the best possible use of education facilities in jail. This is to ensure the volunteers do not waste their time. All volunteers must duly elect their OC twice a year in the months of January and July. Company staff must also be elected. It must be stressed that PDF work is an important aspect of working for the Republican movement. By helping the Green Cross, volunteers in prison will be helping the families of prisoners who might otherwise be in need. Drill is an important part of discipline in the jail, but the times and regularity of drill will be left to the discretion of the TO and staff of the jail. Anyone with a genuine complaint or reason as to why they should not partake in drill can obtain permission to absent themselves from the OC. Uh, well, the first thing that struck me was the, the colour brown, horrible, horrible colour brown painted in the hallway. And I remember thinking that's like a colour out of the dark ages. You know, a colour dark brown and dark green, bottle green that I'd remembered from I was a child. I would have associated those colours with... Um, Poverty in some way, you know, somebody that the the dark colours were to conceal dirt on the walls, or the the colour itself was the the first thing that struck me, and then the the tiled floor, and I remember the reception thinking, my God, this is really small. You know, I always pictured it to be a big, big place, and then. Uh, brought you through some open passageway, an open path where a bit of a garden and then your first vision of the, the gates and then the keys and then I was put downstairs that first night um, I was put down with the remands remands were downstairs and sentenced prisoners who all had political status were upstairs, uh, anybody who was interned was automatically a political prisoner. Uh, so you were automatically put upstairs, cell number one. To our right is B-Wing, to our left is A-Wing. A-Wing, as I said, is the, uh, the biggest of the two, two wings, and the double, double gates would have been close behind the prisoners. It is a spooky place. Uh, as somebody has said, you can still feel the presence of, of people here. It must have been terrible for them. They were so young. Yeah, so so young. And as we can see now, the, uh, the cells were not, were not at all spacious. But 
They, they really are small. They'd be they about are. four foot by what? Eight foot? Something like four, that? Four foot by about twelve. Four by twelve? Four by twelve. With these dirty yeah. ceilings which make them echo. Yeah, the, the doors, these are still the original um, cell doors, and if you just feel how heavy they are. And they're completely solid, there's just a spy hole in just them. Just a spy hole in them, yeah. Oh, God. And that, that's what you've been raised with. This is really quite shocking. Uh, you can see at the end of each land there are those toilet facilities, a bathroom facility, which are not spacious at all for the amount of prisoners that would have been using them. And then we can go up onto the landings. The uh, wire mesh above our heads was so that nothing could be through down on top of wires or people could not be through over the balconies. These terrible institutional colours as well. Yeah, they are very, very bland. And would this have been how it was? This is how it was. You you can still still see the the toilets are still still in place. And I'm told that the grill on the top of the toilet bowl, so people couldn't stick to get their heads stuck down the toilet. Oh, good God! (laughs) I've never been in a place like this. No, it, it is it is quite quite eerie, especially after dark. The the, the images that it conjures up are are quite spooky. The same I saw was the hardest I've heard of my prison. When I got my brother not went into long cage, when he was there, there was men there who had been in prison in the forties and then back in again so they knew the whole structures and of how things worked and this that and the other and it's somebody to teach them ladder work somebody to teach them weed work but we went in and there wasn't anybody to teach us anything so we had to just pick up for, you know from our like what we thought and another thing um, I thought was important at the time and father Raymond Murray he was very good in this and writing the NIO and that about it was education you know, for classes. And uh, another thing we're having special category status was um, every morning the girls drilled and every first Sunday in the month we had a parade. And uh, the parade was always in honour of the dead because not a month ever passed that there wasn't some volunteer had died. So that was the thing. And then making the uniforms was another thing. We all had black skirts and we, well, because I wouldn't have us have black breaths in, so we made our own. We crocheted them. So it was all trying, you know, to make the time useful for the reason why you were there. And so it was an education as well. I was first arrested in September 1973. I was 18 years of age, along with another girl, and she was 17. And we were charged with having uh, a rifle in the Lenardoon area of Belfast. I was sentenced to eight years in prison and the other girl was sentenced to seven years in prison and I was released in 1977. I was actually shot when I was arrested. The army shot me in the legs. I lost my knee. 
and they nearly had my leg amputated, only for a surgeon in Musgrave Park Hospital. He saved my leg. Okay, I think I stalled at the time they gave out the, the warning. Stop, halter with fire, and I think I turned round with the rifle and they opened up, shot. I think they actually shot at me in the leg because I was a female. If I had been a male, they would have um, shot him dead, maybe. I was held in a wing of Armagh Prison along with women who were sentenced. I think it's normal in a jail for their man prisoners to remain separate from sentenced prisoners, but because there were so many women coming through the gates of Armagh Prison at that time, the internees were coming in. And there was, I think there was only six internees there, and it don't think the prison staff could cope, so everybody was just put in together. So when I went into Armagh Prison, I had a walking stick, and my friends all met me at the gate. Big chair went up and I was nearly died of embarrassment. I remember seeing Eileen, didn't know Eileen Hickey at the time. And a few of my other friends here knew, comrades in the movement, they were there to meet me and take me up and look after me and went into the cell and more or less sat at the camp with them. When I was in Armagh Prison, um, through the four and a half years that I was there, we felt that we had control that we weren't being told what to do, that we were running the prison ourselves and we had it, you know, we had a routine worked out so that everybody could live because, it, after all, you had young girls of 15 years old right up to a granny in her 60s. So we had a list of do's and don'ts and a list of cleaning rotas and you know, different things like that to make life as easy as possible for the girls. 1974... I first went in the Armagh in um, March 1974. The first time I was charged with causing an explosion down in um, Greencastle, where I'm originally from, which I received five years for. I was 18. To Willie Whitelaw. So you think you can change me, rearrange me, my beliefs, steal my mind, take my time? Lock me in this cell, you fool. You can't see I have a mind, strong and fine, one united with my flesh. You'll never change me, rearrange me, my beliefs steal my mind, and all you've taken is my time. Since the 1st of January 1973... 31 Catholic women have been imprisoned without trial in Northern Ireland. 18 of these are still jailed without trial. The right to a public and fair trial haven't been interfered with by the Diplock courts. Arbitrary imprisonment has been used against Catholics in every decade of the life of the Northern Ireland statelet. The Catholic community regards it as institutional violence. It was always their argument that peace means the safeguarding of personal values and the creation of a just society. The repercussions of the imprisonment of Catholic men, juveniles and women, without trial is symptomatic of the failure of the powerful and the privileged to share. Being interned, it was quite difficult um, psychologically because if a person was charged with something was brought to court and was sentenced, then that person generally would have focused on their release date. 
But being interned, someone, as what happened to me, could come the next day and just tell you to go. You, your sentence was an open-ended sentence. I was the first unconditional release, which was as it should have been. I didn't get an apology, but the unconditional release was you shouldn't be here, so go home. It was just after lunchtime, and the, there used to be a big hot plate, and all the empty dishes were sitting on it, and there was mince that day for dinner, and I remember looking at there were some remains of it in the in the dish, and thinking, oh my god, that looks disgusting. But um, thankfully, um, we were allowed parcels because we had political status then, so we depended on our families to send us in decent food. Um, I was put in with uh, another girl from Andersonstown because the there was. The jail was rightly full at that time and the majority were doubled up because the jail was so full. But I would have preferred anyway to go in with somebody else and only been you and been shown the ropes as such. 1975. The number of women in jail is still very high when one thinks back to the odd few in pre-1969 days. The political upheaval is still reflected in the high prison population, many of them teenagers. Internment of Catholic women ended during 1975. In all, 31 Catholic women were interned in the prison emergency. It is hoped that this immoral step of the British government, an infringement of human rights, will not be used again for any of its citizens. At lunchtime on the 18th of March, the principal officer told everyone to go to their cells. It was lock-up, and it was very unusual. That was not the, that's not that wasn't the regime. That's not what happened. And it could have been a couple of things. It could have been a, a, a wing search. It could have been cell searches. It could have been this, it, it, there were very little that it could have been. Um, Something in my heart told me that it was it was that time. I don't know why, I don't know what happened, but when I went into my cell, I started to pack my stuff. I don't know why. I put my coat on and I started to gather my bits and pieces together. And the, the governor came in <clears throat> and she, she told us we were going home. And she said, well, not home, you're going to Armagh. I said, that's near enough for me. We got flown on an RAF plane and the, the guy in the uniform came down and he had made us coffee and he gave us coffee. And Every time I saw a bit of green, I cried. And Marion kept saying, that's not Ireland yet. That's, that's the Isle of Man. It's, you know, don't cry yet. So eventually, you know, eventually when I, I thought, is that it, Marion? I think that is. So then I was, I could cry properly, you know. So. Generally speaking, I think the atmosphere among the women political prisoners in 1975 has been good. So also their relations with the staff. Life has fallen into a working routine. They keep themselves busy at crafts and domestic work 
and they have good education facilities. These have been built up over the past few years. I think also that the welfare workers and the nursing sister do a good job. It is my opinion that the present prison reforms were brought about through the granting of special category status. One hopes that imprudence in this matter will not wreck the present harmonious atmosphere. This is the exercise yards and the big gates are where the prisoners were came through. There's also another set of gates to the front of the building which the vehicles could come through as well. But this would have been the main access route for the prisoners coming in. They would come into this courtyard and taken into the Crown Hall. Uh, There they they would have been processed and then uh, sent to their cells from there. And this yard would have been where people would have exercised? This is the exercise yard. You can still see the, the numbers on the walls where the uh, prisoners w- would have gathered. Uh, recently we've done some work. There were, was a building uh, situated just in the concrete area which was around about 1970s, built primarily for the Price sisters. The procedure was that we arrived in our man, there was a formality that had to be gone through, which was that you applied for what they called special category status. And you made an application to the governor and provided the the company on the wing, the the um, the prison leadership, provided that they accepted you as one of their own. Uh, then, of course, it was a, just a rubber stamp job that you got your special category status now. If I had been, if I had been the British establishment, and if I had known that I was endeavouring to remove political status as they were and as they had promised, um, I would have thought this was a very good uh, time to do it because we were arriving without political status. We didn't have political status in England, didn't exist in those prisons. And it was a big worry of mine, you know, a big worry of mine until, of course, it came through. Yeah, you're granted special category status. And I thought... That's pretty stupid of them, but anyway, we arrived with our possessions. This crew walked us up to a wing. Walked, and we 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 came from a, a situation where you didn't go anywhere without a screw at your shoulder. Probably two. You didn't walk in a door. You didn't walk down a landing. You didn't you didn't go anywhere without a screw beside you every step of the way. And we walked into our ma up onto a wing. And the screw sat down in the windowsill and she said, there you are. And we we thought, yeah, where are we? And we expected her to take us to a cell, to put us in, to lock us up. And that didn't happen. And we kind of rambled along this landing past these cells and saw girls walking about. And some girls looked and some girls. And we we didn't know where we were. We didn't know what to do. And eventually somebody came out and there was a bit of a whisper and someone said, yes, it is them. 1976. Special category status for those sentenced after the 1st of March 1976 ended. 
Due to the political atmosphere, the number of women in prison is still high. Prior to the political convulsion in Ireland, the numbers were minimum. It is likely that these high numbers of prisoners will continue, often involving teenagers, while the political situation remains sterile. The special category prisoners are slowly trickling out, having served their sentences. A-wing and B-wing have been um, R-wing, the Republican wing, and when they were about, they had had been building C-wing. At a certain point, they they moved all remaining prisoners with status to C-wing, um, which at that time there would have been still quite a number of us. We were on both landings there. I, there would have been quite a number, but the numbers were, were dwindling because people were coming to the end of their sentences. And, um, you know, myself and Marion were lifers. We were the only lifers in the prison. Um, and another couple of girls who had long, longish sentences to do. But by and large, they were drifting out the Maria Farrell and the remand prisoners were were um, were then going for their trials and and eventual convictions. And Maria was the first to be to have to be not granted special category status. Um, by the time that we had gone to Sea Wing, the the rump of the the political prisoners, um, the rump of the prisoners with status. The other political prisoners were without status were on A wing and B wing or just A wing at that time. Um, so their numbers were growing and our numbers were dwindling on C wing and we only had access to each other really on a Sunday when we went to Mass and we met in the chapel. Um, that would have been that would have been the contact. Now, new political prisoners, 14 on remand and 4 sentenced, will be denied these rights. I cannot understand how civil servants ride on the wounds of others. The following September, 1977, I was rearrested in Carrickfergus, along with two other women, and charged with um, having sentry devices. I was arrested in September, 1977, and was on remand for 14 and a half months, or near 15 months. And I was sentenced the following December, which was 1978, and I received eight years then. It had changed completely, um, because as soon as uh, I arrived in Armagh, and the majority of the screws were the same ones that had been there the previous year, and they took great pleasure in informing me that now that I wasn't a political prisoner anymore, that I was just a common criminal. They had built the new block, C block it was called, and that was for the new, the remand prisoners that came in after status had been removed. So it was um, an entirely different building that we were sent to. Um, There was ordinary criminals on the wings too, and we were expected to associate with them you know and when we went to the TV room which we refused 
So we had that sort of um, thing going on within the jail that because we still want to be recognised. We wouldn't go to the screws directly. If we needed something, we sent our... We still had our, our wing OCs. And even though they were saying they weren't recognising, they did do it. Because they knew, as we did, that it worked far better. It was easier all round that they recognised our OCs and so they didn't have to go to every individual for whatever. 1977. The most significant thing about Armagh Prison in 1977 is the new high rise of prisoners remanded and convicted for political criminal offences. It reflects again the convulsive state of politics in the north of Ireland. One had hoped that as the special category numbers gradually dwindled and internment of women ended, things would return to some kind of normality. Now the figures are rising again at an alarming rate. A feature also of the political social aspect of the North is the great increase in the number of women interrogated under emergency powers. A disproportionate number of them, as observed by commentators, Catholic women and girls from East Belfast. Prisoners are now lodged in three wings. Wing C, which houses the special category political prisoners. Wing B, which houses ordinary sentenced prisoners and some 20 prisoners on political protest, a number which is steadily growing. Short-termers, among them four protest prisoners and remands, are in a wing. Once we were sentenced then, it was the no-work protest because um, we wanted, of course, to maintain our own wings and do the work that we always did do. But they wanted us to go into sewing rooms and sew jeans and such like. So then we refused to work, with the result that we were locking ourselves all day and were unlocked at 5.30 until 8.30. Freedom and Association and then we lost our remission and letters and visits because of the non the no work protest. We read or we used to um used to be sent out columns of the smuggled letters, um, writing to anyone and everyone who would listen. Um, pleading for a case that, you know, we were political prisoners so therefore we're entitled to political status. I mean, there was always a, a, a letter writing campaign going on. A feature of Armagh prison in 1978 has been the long lockups of the women. This creates a grave psychological problem. It is, in my opinion, inhuman and degrading. Defeminisation. Many of the girls have been sentenced to long sentences. This, with the punishment lockups imposed on the protest prisoners by the British government, creates a state of helplessness. This, in my opinion, and I've heard it also expressed by welfare and education officers to the Commission of Inquiry on Prison Officers' Conditions, leads to a deterioration in the health of the prisoners. I think you do your time in prison much more easily if you have a struggle 
to be going on with. And and I think that this, that they had a struggle for um, political status, and that they had they had something to strive for, and they had something to um, fight for. And we kind of were just quietly sitting there doing our bird, which is not easy. I mean, it's uh, it's always good to have something to be striving for and. Um, to be thinking of way and to be thinking of surviving and how to get through it and how to get one over on the the people you're struggling against and for us it was very much a just sit back and do it which can be just as difficult after the hunger strike and the force feeding and all of the psychological damage that that I have subsequently discovered, created. We never, we didn't ever have a normal relationship with food or eating or or the process of... Because to convince yourself that if you eat, you're going to lose or you're, you've been defeated or you have, you know, you've given in or you have shown weakness or... Um, so you convince yourself of that when you're when you embark on a hunger strike. You have to convince yourself of that because your body is telling you it wants food and you're telling your body, no, you can't have food because, you know, it's for your own good. That, you know, we will not win this struggle if I give you food. So you so there you're setting up a, a very difficult um mindset. Um which has to be rock solid or you will eat food because, you know, that's what that's what the body does. That's what we do. We eat food and then we live. Um, so we had that, there was that element and then the force feeding was very traumatic and it further, it further alienated us from the process of sustenance or um, the whole process of putting food into your body. So we both ended up with very, very, very distorted notions of the function of food. And we both found it very difficult to re-establish a, a, a proper relationship with, with the process of eating, which resulted in us both being anorexic and, and not wanting to eat. 1980. And where were the women on, on the, the no-wash protest? Would it have been in B or A wing? I'm not sure, Laura. I'm not sure. You still have the table where the, the warders would have taken the, the roll call and uh, did any work they had to do. Standing here. The curtains are still in the cell. Good heavens. I don't think anything could prepare you for this. No, no, it's, it's something that I don't think anybody would relish the thought of, of spending any, any length of time in. So we go down on to the ground floor of B-Wing and we can see the laundrette where all the washing floor the person carried out here. There's no lights in this part, part of the, the no external light. 
bar some small window, so you just be careful. Oh my God, okay. The No Wash protest started February 1980. We were still on the No Wash protest and that particular day um, at lunchtime when all the women used to have to go down to the, the very bottom wing, which was B1, to the hot plate to get their dinners. And the majority of women were all down on the bottom floor. And the next thing, male screws and female screws came from every direction and run up the other, up the stairs to the other landings and told everybody, was pushing and shoving everyone to get in. There was two TV rooms, two association rooms as we called them, and pushed the the women in the two different rooms. And we were kept there until they raided everyone's cell and wrecked it. And then we were took out one at a time and thoroughly searched before we were locked up in our cell, which, as I say, was wrecked. That was by the that was evening time by this stage. When we asked to use the bathroom, we weren't allowed. Now, there was one chamber pot in each cell, and the majority of cells, there was two women in it. So... It wasn't long before the chamber pot was full. The following day, um, we still weren't being allowed out. And I think it was the following day after that that they said that we were allowed out in groups of four to the exercise yard because you are entitled to at least one hour's exercise a day. So when we got out, we thought, right, we'll go to the bathroom. And the doors were locked on the wings so we started then emptying the chamber pots we had no um, they were overflowing and as we threw them out on the lantern the screws were had got brushes and were brushing it under our doors back into the cells that went on for a day or two and then we were um, put onto another wing and locked up and again denied toilet facilities and that was how the no wash started. The smell was for the first, I don't know, maybe say week anyway, was overpowering. And I um, actually thought on a number of occasions I was going to be physically sick. But it was one of those things I um, just got used to. Well, we were given one packet of sanitary towels a month. And whether that was enough or not, you got the one packet. And each day you were allowed out to the yard for one hour's exercise. And it was then that we used to empty our chamber pots out onto the wing. And sanitary towels went with it, with the waste. The no-wash in Armagh lasted for 13 months. I have always felt that I never had any other choice. 
that they forced us into doing what we did. And I'm not ashamed of doing what I did. I mean, I wasn't brought up to behave like that. You know, and, and, and no woman on those wings were. I don't think anyone is. But when circumstances are forced upon you, I mean, as I say, I don't think we had any alternative. 1980. On 27th of October, seven prisoners went on hunger strike in the H-blocks and three women in Armagh jail on the 1st of December. They demanded voluntary work, free association and to wear their own clothes. The British answer was to impose excessive punishments which amount to torture, inhuman and degrading treatment contrary to Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. These punishments were complete removal of remission, 24-hour lock-up, deprivation of mental stimulation of any sort, reading material, television, radio, games, hobbies. This was combined with intimate body searches. Protesting prisoners in Armagh jail complained of intimate body searches in the toilet area going to and from visits. Other prisoners complained of searches going to mass, and visitors complained of body searches and hostility and sometimes hatred directed against them. The three of us had all been in different cells, but there was a double cell on the wing we were on, so they put the three of us in the double cell together from day one. Jail food is notorious for being just horrible, but all of a sudden there was these plates of overflown food, piping hot, which was unheard of, and as they left your lunch in, they took the breakfast out. As they brought in your tea, the lunch was taken out. So there was food in your cell 24 hours a day. We were on hunger strike 19 days. It had been called off on the 18th of December. Um, Somebody had tried to come into the jail to inform us that it had been called off in the H-blocks. But the prison regime wouldn't let the visitor in. So it was actually the following day when the women came off, the 19th of December. The serious illness of Marion Price and Pauline McLaughlin, who were released in 1980 when they were in danger of death, and the appalling condition of Dollars Price and Christine Shearing, are indicative of serious underlying problems in the Armagh jail system. I was very elated when I when she was when when Mummy knew she was going. She'd been quite ill. She'd been very ill. She was very wasted, and um, so I was very I was delighted when she went out. But all along, um, a little part of me had always hoped and thought that. You know, because we'd been through everything together, that again this would be a together thing. So it wasn't. Um, so she went out. And actually I should be quite pleased that we were treated as two individuals in that situation because we hadn't been before. It was always, we were always lumped together as if we were some kind of Siamese twins that, you know. So I suppose in a way I should have been quite pleased that they, they, they released that individual prisoner and the other individual prisoner had to stay behind. So it was... 
Yeah, and then I got really depressed because it was like I'd, I'd been separated from my Siamese twin and, uh, and we had actually been each other's best friend. We didn't really get to be on intimate terms with, with, with any other prisoners, really, apart from one girl early on in our when we first arrived in Armagh. So I was lost without Marion, yes, I was lost without her. That was the end of 1980. I was released June 1983. I never had any qualms about planting bombs. My conscience is clear. 1981. The deaths of the hunger strikers had, of course, serious repercussions in the jails. The hunger strike lasted 217 days. Mrs Thatcher has had a Pyrrhic victory. She has ensured a military conflict here for another 10 years at least. The prisoners in Armagh jail, of course, followed the story closely. They had endured severe punishments for a year. The story of their suffering will echo for many a long year. There are a few prisoners left in Armagh jail. Moves should be made on releases, remission, prison activity before the move to McGabry Prison. Education could start immediately. Give them handicraft, Irish lessons, history, English and typing for a start. Shut down the special category. Christine Sheeran is in poor health. The whole history of her case is a legal freak. She should be released under licence. Pauline Derry, Etta Cowan, Christine Smith should be released also on licence. They have served long enough. This was the other door through which any vehicles could have accessed the, the building. So would this be where the women were brought in? They could have been brought in this, this door or the door out in the, in the exercise lo- yard. Lo- uh, this is still the, the screen gate. And the hut for the uh, mortars to sit in. And the big double doors. Good heavens. And these gates, just hit that bar comes down. Yeah. The bar is actually hinged. So you pull the bar down, and the bar would swung down and open the, the big gates. Let the, the black morass in through. So that's basically our margin. I was very, very, very ill. I mean, I think the last time they'd weighed me, I was about five stone or something. And um, I suppose at that point, it particularly didn't matter to me one way or the other, you know. Living, you know, so I got to the stage where I thought, well, I could live or die, and I'll, I'll still get out of this place. You know, I'd had enough of it, I'd had enough of it, and I just physically and mentally, there was, I'd, there was nothing of me left to... To keep on going, you know. I think that that happens, I suppose, to life prisoners, because you don't have a date. You don't have a date that that you strive towards. Okay, well, the fourteenth of March, nineteen whatever, is is the day I go, and that that came home to me very 
very strongly the, the day they they changed early on in 1976 I think it was they changed the remission you know you didn't just get you did a third of your sentence instead of or you did a half of your sentence instead of two thirds so all the girls got different dates the different release dates came up and you know they were getting out like six months earlier or a year earlier or they all had different dates and they all got sent for individually by the governor and I came back very excited that they'd, you know, my release date is, you know, this much earlier. And a few of them made the mistake of saying to me, what's your date now? And I said, I don't have a date. I never had a date. And I thought that was, that's, that was, that's when it first hit me that you don't have a date to get out of this place. And that was very early on, but I think towards the end, towards the end, and just, not seeing an end in sight. You know, we used to joke about girls who were about to go out getting, they would get gate fever, you know, they would get agitated like so many weeks before it was time to go. And uh, I never really got gate fever. 1982. Cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment is prohibited by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Stripping women naked has not only terrible physical effects, but has terrible psychological effects. As a priest, I consider it to be contrary to the Sixth and Ninth Commandments, a serious invasion of a woman's privacy and treating of the person as an object. It is shameful and cruel for the victim and the beholder to uncover a woman's private parts, to expose her genitals and anus to others and the most dreadful thing to remove her sanitary towel. Past experience shows that cruel policies lay the foundations of further troubles. It is another failure, like the torture, like the SAS killings, like the plastic bullet maimings and killings, like the shoot-to-kill policy. It is terrible cruelty. Well, they introduced this outfit, which, if anyone... Has ever been the Lourdes? I have it in Lourdes too. And when I was in Lourdes in 1990, I had a lot because it just reminded me of the strip search. This half and half. You strip off and you put half an outfit on. It's like a, a, a long vest to here, your midriff. And you stripped off your bottom half so you were naked. That's so that you weren't completely naked at all times with them. And then you put your clothes back on. You sent your clothes out over this door, sent them out for them to strip or to search. And they sent the clothes back in again. You put your bottom half on, then you took your top half off and you turned around for them to look to show you weren't concealing anything. And your top half clothes were sent out and that was weird. It was just so weird, you know. So I just used to strip off everything, throw the whole lot out and top off them. Just stand there naked because I wouldn't wear the outfit that they gave. It was just ridiculous to wear, you know. Well, it was very shocking uh, experience. Um, I mean I was very young and probably a very modest, sheltered upbringing. And it had been introduced, so I had been reading about it and hearing about it, and um, very intimidating and very degrading process to have to go through. You would have went into the reception area, and basically you had to take off all your clothes, every everything, um, whether you had your period or not. You still had to remove your underwear, 
if you did have your period, you had to give over your sanitary protection to be inspected. Um, when you were naked, then your body was visually inspected by these screws who were obviously quite happy about it. Um, they would have looked at the soles of your feet, uh, the palms of your hands, for actually touched them for whatever reason. And they would have then asked you, expected you to turn around and completed the same procedure of scrutinising your body uh, from the behind as well and only then were you able to put your clothes back on and leave the reception area while I was on remand I would have made court appearances like every week you know every week we had went to the local court in Armagh to be remanded again and that went on for think maybe about a year I would have had to make weekly court appearances and those were the times when people were being strip searched when you were entering or leaving the jail I never got used to it Um, I was sentenced to life in 1986 This is probably my last report The lack of numbers hardly justifies Armagh as a prison institution Since 1984, the atmosphere vis-à-vis staff and prisoners has improved due to a more understanding direction. This is to be welcomed. In the wider context, it is up to the politicians to move towards partnership and equal power sharing. It would be a bleak future if this tiny piece of land was to be convulsed by another volcano of suffering. The lesson is clear. Generosity and compassion always pay off. Is there a possibility? If you enjoyed this documentary, you might like to listen to our other Documentary on One productions. Visit rte.ie forward slash doc on one. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.